You know, on the, on the occasion of the 4th of July, I'm kind of contemplating a little bit about how Christian faith and U.S. politics collide a little bit. And, and how to think about our, our Christian faith as we think about our citizenship in the United States. And it gets complicated. Some churches um, are so avoiding Christian nationalism that they remove the flag from the church because they don't want to confuse worship of country with worship of our Lord. And, and I do think that happens. There, there are some places where that certainly happens where people um, confuse patriotism and, and, and faith to God. And so oftentimes we're, we're kind of have to ask ourselves, what, what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first, but also realize we are planted and live in the United States of America? Um, I'm kind of reminded of, of a quote that, that I think I want to attribute to Martin Luther King, but also is, is, is very close to the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it, it, it says something like this, that um, the role of the church is to be the conscience of the government. Right? So we begin to understand that when, when we have a government and we have a society that no longer tells the truth, uh, when they're no longer truth-tellers, when they stand for things that are so much contrary to the kingdom, then it is the role of the church and as, of Christians to be truth-tellers and to speak as the conscience of our government. And so on this 4th of July, I just want to encourage you to continue to be truth-tellers, to be bold. Um, I, I think it, it was, you know, kind of one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's things that all it takes for evil to triumph is for a good man to do nothing and to say nothing. And uh, all across our country are people who are so-called Christians who have decided that it's too dangerous to be truth-tellers. So culture continues to shift around us as we're quiet. And it is, it's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany when Hitler came in and all the churches decided to be quiet as they killed the Jews. Didn't, don't have that in my notes. Didn't plan on saying any of this. But on the 4th of July, I want you to encourage you to be truth tellers and to speak up against falsehood and lies that are really trying to take over our world and our country. And it's going to cost us all something to be truth tellers. I want to invite you this morning to gather around the Word of God. Uh, last week we, we read, a, it really the, the sermon last week was called Two Touches, right? And it was about two times in which someone touched Jesus and they were miraculously healed. You had a, a, a woman who reached up and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and you had a little girl who was dead, and Jesus went and touched her by her hand. And um, Jesus often shows compassion to people through physical touch. You ever, you ever think about that? Like, um, he demonstrated when he heals the centurion's daughter that he doesn't need to touch anyone to heal them. You know, the centurion, Jesus is like, all right, let's go heal her. And the centurion's like, no, Lord, I understand how authority works. You just say the word and she'll be healed. And, and Jesus goes, wow, this guy's got great faith. But, but Jesus heals her from across town. Well, then why is it that so many times when we see Jesus do healings, like he reaches out and he, he physically puts his hands on people. He touches them. And, and, and these are mainly unlovely people, like in most of these stories. These are, in almost all cases, ceremonially unclean people. Another quick example today comes from Matthew 9, 27 through 29. So just we'll read that together. It says this, and as Jesus passed on from there, there were two blind men following him, and they were crying aloud, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then look what he does. Then Jesus touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Doesn't it feel like there's a sermon in there somewhere, like of the, the touching of Jesus? The, the downcast and the miserable keep coming to Jesus and Jesus is responding to them not just by blessing them, not just by healing them, but by touching them physically. There's something intimate and powerful about physical touch. And, and i got to be honest with you, because of the sins of, of false teachers in the church and because of our perverse society, touching people as of late has become... Um, perverse, or, or there's something wrong with it. And so uh, I, I don't want that to linger in your mind here as we talk about that, because most certainly there is a touch that is empathetic and compassion and conveys love and encouragement. And it's not creepy, okay? I have been in ministry for 20 plus years. And one of the things we are taught in ministry, and, and rightly so, is to be cautious how you touch people, because touch can be misconstrued and there and there certainly are are like creeps who will touch people in inappropriate ways so I always encourage our leaders to be weary of the way in which we touch people but what a shame it would be if out of fear of misconduct we were forced to completely abandon all physical contact with God's people I I, I mean I can remember standing at the door of this church at the front door, and, and I can remember clearly hugging the neck of a widow and her telling me, Tyson, do you know how long it's been since someone has, uh, has hugged me or given me a hug? And I, I can remember being a child and being at my parents' church, and, uh, and, and the pastor there, that was the pastor as I grew up, and he would always stoop down, and, and you know, he, was, he was glad my parents were there, but, but he would always give my sister and I attention as we walked through the door. He, he would pretend that we had a secret handshake. He'd do some, some secret little handshake with our hands, and he would touch me, and it communicated something to me. He, he, he was seeing me. He was trying to connect with me. Now, be as cynical as you want to be, and, and I get it. We all need to be wise in, in our physical you know, contact, and you should be discerning how you touch people, but sometimes the situation calls for us to touch somebody. And I can, rem- I can remember sitting with a, with a grieving wife who had just lost her husband, and I can remember her shoulders, and they were hunched over, and she was sobbing, and I, sometimes words don't do anything. And I reached over and I, and I squeezed her hand through her tears. And I can remember that touch. It communicated more than any words could say. What, what that touch said is it says, it says, I'm with you. I'm here. I love you. You're not alone. And I think oftentimes in the Bible that when Jesus reaches out and he touches someone, it is a very powerful act of compassion. And as much over the last few weeks as we've talked about Jesus being this great king of kings who is out there to demonstrate his authority, and that is true. I mean, it is 100% true. I think we would get the story kind of wrong if we didn't pause to acknowledge the great compassion that Jesus has for people. 
And, and I want to tell you that in today's reading, we're going to read about the ministry of Jesus. Like, we're going to summarize what, what his ministry looks like. And, and we're also going to hear about what motivates Jesus. And just a hint, what motivates Jesus is his compassion for people. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we join together, read together from Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 4. And before we read this together, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, may you be glorified in our reading of your word. May you uh, bring alive to us the scriptures as you quicken our hearts and make us fall in love with Jesus all over again. We pray this in Christ's name. And the church said, amen. Beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them all authority over unclean spirits to cast uh, them out and to heal every disease and every affl uh, affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Theodos, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, we know that Jesus, um, I, I remember being at a, at, a, at a movie theater sometime and, and some girl said, we don't know how old Jesus was when he died. And I go, I got a pretty good idea. I mean, he started his public ministry when he was 30, as most uh, teachers, uh, rabbis would. And he, he had a three-year public ministry. So when Jesus died, he's probably about 33 years old. And uh, I guess the question is, we, we know Jesus had three years in public ministry, and there's all kinds of ministries in our world. Ministries look all kind of different. I think a fair question to ask is, what did the ministry of Jesus look like, right? What did his specific ministry look like? In, in case we as a church just thought it'd be a good idea to duplicate that, right? If we wanted to have our ministry look like Jesus' ministry, what did his ministry look like? Well, read with me verse 35, because I just happen to think verse 35 is a great summary of the ministry of Jesus. Here's what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. This is Matthew's summary or his summation of the ministry of Jesus. And, and, and really what he does there is he's going to list three things that Jesus primarily does in his ministry. Jesus is going to teach in the synagogues. And what I'm going to suggest to you today is that that is basically preaching. Okay, Jesus was a preacher. And so as he goes to the synagogue, he's preaching. And, and, and the second thing that he does is that Jesus proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. And what I'm going to suggest to you today is that that is basically evangelism. That he is going out into the highways and the byways and he's proclaiming the good news. And, and the third thing that Jesus does is he heals diseases and affliction. And, and what I'm going to suggest to you today is that is basically a ministry of compassion. 
You might call it missions. You might call it just kind of taking care of the least of these. So, so there's three. So there's teaching in the synagogue or preaching, proclaiming the good news uh, of the kingdom, healing every, and it says this. I love that. It says that he healed every disease and affliction. John MacArthur, and, and I don't know this to be the case, but John MacArthur said that he basically must have just wiped out most of the diseases in Galilee because it says that he healed every disease and affliction. This is the work that Jesus had throughout Galilee. Now, now Galilee, we've talked about it some, but it's, it's a pretty big place. It's like 40 miles by 70 miles. And uh, there's a, a Roman guy who used to do Jewish history, and his name is Josephus. And he wrote that there were about 200 different cities and villages in Galilee. So, you know, qu- quite a lot of spread out. And then among those 200 villages and cities, that there were at least 3 million people. So, so Jesus' ministry is to 200 cities spread out throughout Galilee, about 3 million people. And, and here's what's interesting. Here's how he, he was able to preach, right? Because the synagogues at this time, um, you know, they, were, they, they function like the local church in a lot of ways, right? And, and they had this custom of, which we don't have here, of letting visiting, visiting rabbis preach, Right? So, uh, you know, if someone comes into Lakeside and says, hey, I'm in from out of town, I'd like to preach, I say, I don't know you, you know. But here, they would just basically, if you were a visiting rabbi and you were in town in the synagogue, they would let you preach. And what Jesus did is he would take full advantage of this custom. And so Jesus would go from town to town to town, and he would go to all the different synagogues, and as he walked in, they would recognize him as a rabbi, and they would let Jesus preach. And this is the way Jesus would preach. He would read from the Old Testament or have someone else read from the Old Testament, and this is going to blow your mind. He would stand up, and he would explain what it meant. Ta-da! Right? I mean, that, that's what preaching is, Right? He wasn't telling you how to live your best life. He was saying, thus saith the Lord. Here's what the word of God says. Here's what it's about. That's what preaching is. And I don't know about you, but like, I wish we had more of the sermons of Jesus. How cool would that be? I mean, if you think about Jesus as being a preacher, can you imagine? Now, I don't want to detract from the sufficiency of Scripture because it's, it, the Scripture that we have is sufficient to meet our every need. But man, I'd love to hear more of the sermons of Jesus. How cool would that be? Matthew says, uh, not only did Jesus proclaim and preach in the synagogues, but he also proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. And and it's kind of like everywhere that Jesus went, he was sharing the kingdom of God in the highways, in the byways, outside on the street, at Matthew's house, at a dinner party, at the woman at the well, at the city gates. And and so I just want to make sure that we're clear on this. One way to think about this is that when Jesus is is in the synagogues, he's preaching edification to people, and he's gathering people by God's word, and he's equipping people by God's word. And then when Jesus would leave the synagogue, he would go out and he would find people who were not in the synagogue, and he would do evangelism. And we've been reading the last little bit, Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 for a few weeks. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is kind of where Matthew bulks his healing stories, right? It's about showing a certain amount of authority and compassion that Jesus has. We have nine stories of healing in Matthew 8 and 9. It's kind of like this is the healing section, right? And um, there's, there, there's, 
one thing I think we could say, and I think John says it in his gospel, is, is you could fill all the pages of books of men with all the things that Jesus did. And, and, and so what we know is that even though we've got nine stories of healing in Matthew 8 and 9, that Jesus healed a ton more, and we just, we just don't have the stories in front of us. I guess the question is to ask, why did Jesus do these things? Why did Jesus uh, preach? Why did he evangelize? Why did he heal all these people? I, I want to suggest to you that we're going to find that in chapter or in, in verse 36. So his motivation for why he did what he did. Let's look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want to suggest to you that this is a very important verse in understanding who Jesus is, what motivates Jesus. And if you're trying to live like Jesus, you need to understand this verse. Imagine, if you will, Jesus up on a hillside, and he's looking over the masses in Galilee. And, and, and it's the crowd, and, you know, they're like every crowd. There's, there's, there's pushing and shoving, and, and they're all plagued by the same smattering of rudeness that all crowds have, right? Like every crowd, you get them together, there's people pushing and shoving. And Jesus is moved by compassion for the crowd. And that word, compassion, um, in the Greek, it has this subtle nuance of something you feel in your gut. That's what compassion means in the Greek. Um, have you ever felt something in your gut? Have you ever, you ever witnessed something that, that turned your stomach? I remember the first time that I, I cleaned a deer, you know, as a hunter. I remember kind of feeling that in my gut. It just, uh, like, you know, as a young boy, naive and innocent, having to get in there and, and deal with gutting an animal, I felt it in my gut. Parents, have you ever seen your kids hurting? People often describe that experience of seeing your kids hurting and say, it, it, it hurts me to watch my kids hurting. I, I think this is the kind of um, compassion that, that Jesus experienced. And, and when they... When they went to translate that, that word uh, from the Greek to the Latin for the Vulgate, they used this word that, that was compassio, and it meant um, to suffer with. That's the word that they used in the Latin, to suffer with. Jesus sees the crowds, and, and, and he knows they're suffering, and, and Jesus suffers with them. And I, so I just think you need to be reminded that, that about whatever authority we think Jesus is trying to, to, to establish and, and however powerful and whatever king he is, that he is, a, he is greatly compassionate for the crowd and that that is primarily his motivation to do the ministry that he does. What, what verse 36 says about the crowd is that they, they were harassed and helpless. Well, two interesting words, Right? The idea of harass is kind of like when you have too heavy a demand upon you, you're harassed. And these people were helpless. They couldn't do anything about it. They were tormented by their sins. They were helpless. And there was no one who seemed to care for them. Matthew says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. We've heard that before. They were like sheep without a shepherd. But but we know there's religious leaders all around who claim to be about the work of God. These would be the scribes and these would be the Pharisees. However, these scribes and Pharisees, they didn't have compassion for the crowd. They were indifferent 
to the crowd. They were probably annoyed by the crowd. They, they were maybe threatened and challenged by the crowd. I mean, to be honest with you, the crowd was full of sinners after all. And what if that sin was to somehow permeate the synagogue or the church? No, thank you. I mean, keep the crowds away. But Jesus had compassion on them. And he says, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And here's the deal, my friends, and, and, and I don't know who needs to hear this, but, but I think some of you need to be convicted by this word. Now, you see, I, uh, I don't know that I love the, the crowds. I go, I go through seasons, and I have to focus. I have to pay attention to love the crowds. Otherwise, I don't love them. I went to Sam's Club in Madison last weekend. And like, we didn't think our trip out real well, and so we went about uh, 10, 30, 11, uh, which is kind of like when the late sleepers go before lunch, you know? And it, it was prime shopping mayhem at Sam's. There were no, no carts at the front of the store. We could walk up there, and everyone's just kind of turn around like, what do we do, you know? And we had to walk out in the parking lot and get our own cart, and we had to walk through there. And uh, as we entered the store, everywhere we turned, there were just groups of people stopping. And, and, and as I've said before, I think that shoppers at Sam and Walmart have zero self-awareness, uh, they have zero peripheral vision. They can't see anyone but themselves and what they're looking at. And they walk down the center aisle. And every aisle I went to, I felt like there was someone walking in slow motion towards the very product I just needed to put in my cart. And then when they got there, they would just kind of like pause and hover over it for like three or four minutes. And friends, I just want to tell you that I shop very much like a man. I can shop at a full jog. Like, I know what I came for. If you're, like, if no one's in my way, I can get in and out of Walmart in seven minutes and spend $400 on groceries. 100%. We got over to the part of Sam's where they have the, the rotisserie chickens. And, um, you know, when they don't sell the day before rotisserie chickens, sometimes they tear the pieces off and put them in these little containers. And you can, you know, like, for three fifty, you get, like, four thighs or, like, five breasts or something. And I looked over, and I, they had some of those. And I looked at Kimmy, and we made eyes, you know. When we were young, that meant something different. But now it just means you see that chicken. Um, and, and I was going to go and get the chicken. But, of course, there was a, a, a lovely lady who was handling all the chickens and she was standing there. There were, there, were, there were only four, four packages of chicken there. And she was switching them in different order there. And I just kind of was pacing my foot, you know, I was tapping it. And, I just got, and so eventually, like, I just kind of went around. I said, excuse me. And I grabbed one. And, and she looked at me and, and she said, that's the one I wanted. I kid you not. Like, I kid you not. Ask my family. Um, at that moment, I lost my mind. I, I kind of... I put it back. I said, fine, you have it. And we just left, and I walked around mad at, um, at Sam's, and it was basically done with, with everyone. I was done with the crowd. What I really wanted at that moment was to go back in the woods or back in my home and just close the door and be alone. And then I sit down on Monday morning, and the Lord sees fit in his providence to put before me to teach about how Jesus loves the crowd. Thank you, Jesus. And it's so much different the way he feels about the crowd than I do. And I was immediate, like I was immediately convicted. And conviction is a gift, my friends. And so when it comes, we embrace it, right? And, and I, I think we are all probably guilty of lacking the proper compassion for the crowd. When Jesus sees the crowd, he sees them 
harassed and helpless, and it drives him to proclaim good news, to heal their infirmities, and it motivates his ministry. But the Pharisees, man, they see the crowd as an inconvenience, as sinners who are opposed to God. And, and what I'm afraid of, I'm afraid that many in this room, myself included, would find themselves more like Pharisees than Jesus, that, that we don't have compassion for the masses out there. And therefore, because we don't have compassion for them, we don't have a ministry for the masses. Think about this. The Pharisees, they loved the Word of God. They loved preaching, right? But because they had no compassion for the masses, they never had a ministry to the world. And therefore, Jesus says that the, the, the crowds throughout all of Galilee are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the crowds as, as sheep who needed shepherding, and he looks at his disciples, and this is what he says to them, verses 37 through 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I think there are two things about this illustration that we need to say. Uh, first off, when Jesus is talking about the harvest, he's talking about people. He's talking about the crowd. In, in one way, Jesus is saying there are a lot of people who need to hear the gospel, and there are a lot of people who are in need of compassion. But there are not a lot of people who are willing to share the gospel. There are not many people who go into Walmart and have great compassion for people that drives them to the actions of evangelism and mission. And that, that's 100% part of what Jesus is saying, okay? But if you know your Bible and you know your Old Testament, you know that the idea of that, that term harvest, because that's what he's talking about, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But you know this term harvest, if you know your Bible, is, is a loaded term. Okay, because whenever the Bible talks about harvest, it's almost always talking about God's righteous judgment. Look at Joel 3, 12 through 13. It says this, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in. Tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. The harvest is always in Scripture also when God judges the nations. And the same idea is found, if we were to fast forward a little bit to Matthew 13, it's this idea of the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat represents all those who trust in Jesus. The tares are all those people who do not trust in Jesus. And they're allowed to live together and to grow up together until what? Until the harvest. And what's the harvest? It's judgment. On the day of the harvest, the Lord separates the wheat and the tares, and, and the wheat is taken into his barn, and what happens to the tares? It is burned with fire. You can see that the harvest carries this idea of, of judgment, right? And Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, which is to suggest there are a lot of people who, who belong to me and who must be gathered into my kingdom. And, and, and so in one way, this is a great message of hope. And what, I guess here's the question. Knowing this, having compassion, knowing you know, that there's a harvest, what does Jesus tell his disciples to do? 
This is very practical stuff, by the way. You want a practical sermon? This is very practical stuff. Jesus does two things with his disciples. The first thing Jesus does is he tells his disciples to pray. Notice this. God calls all people to himself. He he is the Lord of the harvest. But yet he, he tells his disciples to pray. This is what he says. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, Jesus believes in the power of prayer. And he instructs his disciples to pray that God would send more laborers into his harvest. And I want to suggest to you that, like, there is not one person in this room who cannot do that. You could all do that. You could all be praying for God to send out more laborers into the harvest. Doesn't cost you a dime to pray that. More people to share the gospel and love to the downtrodden. And then the very next verse, after he tells them to pray for workers, um, what does Jesus do? Verses uh, 10-1, this is what he says. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. You You see, Jesus is duplicating himself in his disciples, and it's all driven by, by his compassion for these people. He sees them as harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd, and so he calls his disciples, and what does he do? He gives his disciples his authority. We've been talking about his authority for a long time, about all this authority that Jesus has, and he gives it to his disciples. And, and he basically tells them, go and do the things you've seen me be doing. Feel feel in your stomach the pain that I feel. This is what Jesus is suggesting to his disciples. Have this kind of uh, compassion and take my kingdom authority and go and minister to these people. The disciples are uniquely given authority over spirits, over diseases, over affliction. And if they've been watching Jesus, and they have, my guess is, they have, is they're going to go out and they're going to heal people, and they're going to have a compassion similar to Jesus, and, and that the disciples themselves will stretch out their hands, and they will touch people. And they're going to enter into their suffering with them. And people have often asked, they'll say like, um, have all Christians today been given the same authority Do they have the same authority to to heal diseases and cast out demons? Is that something that we should be doing? And listen, I'll just tell you that that I think good brothers and sisters will differ on the interpretation of this. But I, I tend to think that this authority was uniquely given to the apostles. As God was, was there and he was establishing his kingdom in Jesus. And, and, and it, was, it was uniquely given to the apostles this, this great authority to, to cast out demons and to heal. As a way of showing the multitudes that the way of Jesus is true. That the way that you can know that Jesus forgives sin is because Jesus can tell the paralytic to get up and walk. So I don't think God has given every Christian the, the authority to cast out diseases. I think that was unique to the apostles. But... I think God can still do miraculous things today and and do miraculous healings. But it's by his authority and his authority alone and not by some authority found in a faith healer, if you get my meaning. But uh, let me close by wrapping all this together. We say here at Lakeside that we are a gospel-driven, mission-centered family of believers and we didn't come up with that mission statement. It's, it's, It's not super original, right? And that's good because 
we can look at the ministry of Jesus. And here he is. He is, he is preaching in the synagogues. He is evangelizing in the streets. He's involved in caring for those who are downtrodden. This is the ministry of Jesus. Preaching, evangelism, missions. And what fuels Jesus is a burning compassion in his gut. Now listen, I do believe that Jesus felt compassion deeper than us. I believe that Jesus, that his essence, his eternal essence has a greater capacity than we have for feeling compassion. That his eternal divine essence allowed him to feel compassion deeper than we have. And, and I think if you put that compassion of an eternal divine God into a human body, I'm sure that that burns in his gut. I guess my question comes down to this. Do you share Jesus' compassion for the lost? And if so, what are you going to do about it? Will you join in the ministry of Jesus? Will you share the gospel of the kingdom? Will you reach out and touch those who are unlovely and unclean? Will you be driven by compassion to bear the burden of the dirty masses? Or will you go to lunch today and forget this sermon? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Thanks be to God that in his sovereignty, all things work according to his will. Let's pray together this morning. Father, how gracious you are um, as the Lord of the harvest to send workers and to send your word that we might find ourselves safe in your barn at the time of the harvest, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you that the word of, 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 of truth rests richly in our hearts. But God, let us have a compassion for those outside our doors. Let us not simply uh, have one-third of the ministry of Jesus and surround ourselves and gather ourselves around the Word of God, but let us have, have the full ministry of Jesus and let us go and, and proclaim the, the good news of the gospel and to touch the downtrodden as we leave here. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all the church said, Amen. Amen.